podcast is brought to you by CEW Plus at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor as we work to serve our community during this unprecedented time of change. Resiliency is best demonstrated in times of challenges. Join CEW Plus Director Tiffany Mara as she talks to students, staff, faculty, and community members connected to the University of Michigan's Center for the Education of Women Plus in our podcast, Strength in the Midst of Change. Today's podcast features Liz DeBetta, Advocacy Program Manager at CEW+. Dr. DeBetta is an interdisciplinary scholar, artist, activist whose work is grounded in creativity and social justice to help create social change for individuals and communities that have been marginalized and oppressed. As an advocate and activist, she uses stories to amplify the voices of adoptees to help women who have experienced gender-based violence and to fight for reproductive justice. She's presented nationally and internationally on topics ranging from adoption and reproductive justice, using writing to heal trauma, gender-based violence, and resisting colonial paradigms in higher education. Liz, it's my honor to speak with you today. Welcome to the Strength in the Midst of Change podcast. Thanks. I'm so happy to be here. Can you please introduce yourself and what drives you in your work? Sure. So there's a few things I think that drive me. I have a sort of interesting background, and I know we'll get into a little bit of that story later, but my undergraduate degree is in theater, and for many years, my big dream in life was to be an actor, and that is a goal and a dream that I pursued for a long time until I had some life shifts and health challenges and took some detours for a while, but performance work has always been a really important piece of who I am and you know, part of my creative process and something that has helped me manage a lot of difficult emotions over the years. And when I got into my PhD work, I was fortunate enough to find a program that really focused on social justice and creativity as some of the core components of the program. And that was really appealing to me as an older student pursuing that degree to be able to take the breadth and depth of my experience into that work and combine my background as a performer, my background as a writer and a teacher of English, which is another thing that I had done for many years, and craft it into something new that was really oriented towards social justice. And so through my dissertation work, I really got into two sort of strands of writing and performance work, one of which is the use of writing as a healing practice, and then also being able to use embodied performance and autoethnography as research methods to use writing as healing for both individual and cultural trauma. So putting myself in situation with an audience to have an exchange that creates empathy and, and dialogue around really difficult subjects. And then some of my work with regard to issues of gender-based violence has just come out of some really righteous anger. (laughs) You know, just holding space and hearing other people's stories and realizing like so many of us have things that need to be shared and things that need to be voiced and have lived with so many imposed silences for so long that I really have a deep desire to not only use my own stories but to help other people use their stories to drive change and to facilitate a healing process for themselves and, you know, the world. Mm-hmm. Now, um, I understand that you have experience as a non-traditional student, something relevant to the work CEW Plus does with non-traditional students, including student caregivers. 
can you tell me more about your past experience and how it informs your current work? Yeah, so it's interesting. I did not ever consider myself a non-traditional student until I came to CEW. Shortly after I started working here and started learning about the ways that we define non-traditional students and the type of students that we serve on a regular basis as part of our mission, I thought, oh wait, that's me too. And part of it is recognizing that as an undergrad, my mom was disabled and I have a younger brother with Down syndrome and I was his primary caregiver for many of those years while my mother was going to doctor's appointments or, you know, just at times, frankly, depressed and unable to function in a caregiving capacity for him. And he was, I was 19 and he was 14 at the time. And I commuted, so I was a commuting student. And although I was like traditional in the sense of I was the typical college age student, I often had to bring my brother to things on campus when there was no other person to take care of him. And then I realized that I sort of followed a non-traditional student path because I had to take a huge break from finishing my master's degree, which I started in 2002 and should have completed in 2004. And I didn't get back to it until 2015. (laughs) So do the math there. And the reason for that was that Again, my mom had some health issues. She had some cancer scares and had to have surgeries and deal with that. And I was helping my dad and, you know, my brother with her health. And the last two credits of my degree got put on hold because I had to take a leave of absence in order to care for my mom and help my family. And then I ended up in an abusive marriage. And that meant that I was not allowed to go back to school. And then when I tried to go back after leaving that marriage, thankfully I had some really good support to do that, I <laughs> hit some roadblocks with the person who was coordinating that program at the time. Just a really unhelpful person who would not speak with me, who would not meet with me in person, would not take any of the documentation that I had and just simply said to me, sorry, it's been too many years, I can't help you. And then fast forward another couple of years and the universe does what it so often does and I was working at a nonprofit called Pajama Program at the time and a former classmate of mine from my master's program showed up to volunteer randomly. I hadn't seen her in many years and we got to talking and I mentioned that I had never finished my last two credits. And she was like, oh, that's crazy. What do you mean? And I'm like, I know, but here's what happened. And I just kind of gave up on it. And she was like, no, let me see what I can do. I can put you in touch with the new coordinator of the program. And, you know, I bet she'll help you. Well, lo and behold, within 24 hours of her making that connection for me, the director of the program at the time, Catherine Goodland, was like, no problem. I pulled up your records, everything's great, I'm gonna readmit you as a student, let's figure this out. And so that was like the complete opposite of the previous person, right, and this was, so this became like a woman who was like, yes, I support you, right, I want you to finish this, Mm -hmm. I want you to succeed, Um, which meant a lot to me. And she also, at the time, 
even though I didn't need to take any more classes, suggested that I might consider taking another class. And she suggested autobiographical writing. And I was like, sure, that sounds interesting. All right. And I'm so grateful for that suggestion because that is the thing that cracked open this whole world of stories and storytelling for me and learning how to tell my own story. And then I didn't start my PhD till I was 40, right? Which is also another sort of really non-traditional way to go about Mm -hmm. (laughs) the process of doing the degree plan. So I really empathize with the older students that we serve at CEW, the students who are caregivers and parents. I'm not a parent, but I have always been a caregiver. And the challenges that we face in trying to figure out how to finish our degrees, how to maintain a full-time job. I was working full-time while doing my PhD, like, you know, trying to navigate both of those things while also figuring out, you know, how to have a life and how to support my partner and how to support my family, you know. So those are things that until I came here, I never really thought about. But now I can say, oh, I identify and I relate. And I think that's helpful in doing this work. Absolutely. And we hear that a lot. Like, I never considered myself a non-traditional student until I saw, like, the experiences of others and how it's impacting them and how CEW serves students. I'd imagine that your unique experiences and your perspective, your expertise around storytelling, autoethnography, all of that probably has ideas swirling about how you can serve the community at U of M. I'd love to hear more from you about the connections you draw between all of these different intersectional ideas that you have. Yeah, so I'm going to get a little textbooky for a second because I think a lot of people are interested in autoethnography as a method, as a form of cultural mediation, which is what it is, but don't always know exactly how to define it or like what Mm -hmm. it means, right? We hear it. We still don't have like the text recognition, like every time I type it. My computer doesn't know what to do with it, but Mm -hmm. that's another story. But in terms of like autoethnography, it's a form of storytelling. It's a very feminist method that honors lived experience. And I really like Elizabeth Torrey's work and definition. And she says that it's an authentic method that locates research experience in the changing ebb of emotional life, allowing interpretations of personal truths and speaking about oneself to transform into narrative representations of political responsibility. And then there are sort of like four kind of pillars of that, which is that autoethnography creates transitional immediate spaces, inhabiting crossroads or borderlands of embodied emotions. It's an active demonstration of the personal is political. It's a feminist critical writing, which is performative, that is committed to the future of women and, uh, in my words, others. And it helps us to raise oppositional consciousness by exposing precarity. So my take on this is that in terms of autoethnography and personal storytelling, narrative storytelling, incorporating narrative elements of self-reflection into one's life and work, shall we say, it really creates space for empathetic exchange because it's fluid and engaged with both the self and another's humanity. And when I talk about storytelling and I think of it as really, you know, as I've said, deeply healing work, it's because we are a narrative-driven culture. Like, there are stories everywhere. Some of them are good. Some of them are bad. Many of them are bad. (laughs) Many of them are in need of revision. And so the act of storytelling not only helps us connect to other people, but it helps us to dispel myths and reveal Mm -hmm. truths about ourselves 
and the conditions under which we are living, which may not always be ideal. Mm -hmm. um, and that's especially true for people like myself who are adopted, who have experienced gender-based violence, you know, have all of these like invisible intersections of identity mm -hmm. that can impact the full expression of our humanity. Mm -hmm. And so for me, storytelling and autoethnography are as much a research method and a way of being, mm -hmm. and a way of being a feminist in the world as they are an expression of helping myself and others to find truth by voicing experiences. And you know, the idea of breaking silence is something that comes up often in conversations that I have, in my writing, in my performance work. It's all about using the performance or the words or the stories to break silences around really uncomfortable subjects. Because mm -hmm. when we start to sit with that discomfort, that's when we grow, that's when we can change mm -hmm. and help other people change. Yeah, so my undergraduate degree was in cultural anthropology. And ethnography, as an anthropologist, meant it's the study of others mm -hmm. using their voice to tell their story, but it never embedded the personal. So as the anthropologist, I never was supposed to impose my own values or my beliefs into what was happening. It sounds like autoethnography is the combination of the two. Yeah. So it's the relationship between both individuals in the conversation and how together they form a healing space to process and to kind of comprehend the world around each individual. Is that an accurate summary? I'm yeah, I mean, so the auto, right, that just brings in the self and it locates the self as a source of knowledge and a body of knowledge that can be interpreted and reconstituted uh -huh. for, you know, as I said, cultural mediation and in terms of looking at the lived experiences of people from the personal mm -hmm. in order to shift policy, mm -hmm. you know, and then that's a lot of what my work is about is using the personal as a tool to shift policy and that's where that personal is political as part of this comes in that we don't discount lived experience as a valid form of knowledge mm -hmm. we honor it mm -hmm. yeah makes a lot of sense part of this interview isn't just to hear about your experiences and your story which is amazing but we're also conducting the interview to introduce you to our listeners um, as you'll be taking over hosting this podcast what are you excited about given this opportunity Oh, I'm excited to be able to connect with more of the CEW community. I think, you know, one of the goals of the podcast up to this point and continuing, it has been and, and will be to highlight the stories and experiences of all the amazing people that we serve through our work here. And I have gotten to meet some of them, you know, since I started last September, but I'm really excited to continue to meet people through the process of encouraging them to tell their stories and connecting with them, you know, in the booth here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it has been amazing talking to many different people in the community that I had never met before, because you learn about all of their research, their life experiences, the people who motivate them, how they're surviving periods of change. And it has been eye-opening, the diversity of types of effort that are happening on the personal, professional, and educational fronts, just being able to hear the complexity of all of that through this process. But I'm excited to pass it on to you to you know, help you build your network here in Michigan. 
um, you know, this podcast initially started as a way to capture the resilience of CEW community members through the pandemic, and then changed to focus on how individuals demonstrate strength through times of change. I mean, you know, this will become yours. How do you anticipate the focus of the podcast may shift? I mean, I think we always have to think about the ways that people are resilient and navigating change and, you know, honoring their whole selves in that process. I think the focus, you know, as I've talked so much about so far, like I'm really interested in stories and I'm really interested in connecting with people through the stories they have to tell. And so I think it may not be necessarily a perceptible shift, but I think really move into some deep storytelling and learning about people and connecting with them and their research and whatever they're working on. And also I think, you know, because so much of my interest is in healing and helping people heal, I think that I wanna honor some of my own knowledge and desire to continue to create spaces for healing and wellness through these conversations. Mm -hmm. That's great. Finally, we like to encourage our listeners to invest in taking care of themselves. Do you have any self-care practices you wish to share? Sure. Self-care is one of those things that can feel fraught for a lot of people. It can feel selfish. It can feel like we are letting, you know, other things fall to the wayside if we do something for ourselves. But it's actually vital to our wholeness and our well-being. And that's been a hard lesson for me because of, you know, my history of trauma, just not (laughs) recognizing my own needs and taking care of other people at the detriment of my own self. So I now do a lot of paying attention to myself. And one of the things that I love is water. And I lived in Utah for six years, which is distinctly lacking water. And so that's one of the reasons I was really excited to get to move to Michigan because there is so much water around. So one of my self-care practices is to find and be near water. And I do that in a couple of ways. When the weather's nice, I'll go sit by a lake or take a walk by the river. And then now, because it's cold, one of the other things that has been really beneficial for me is I go to float therapy. And I float once a week and it is sensory deprivation. It's just a warm salty bath and you Mm -hmm. just float in the dark and let everything go and so those are things that I do and I think tapping into creativity is always a good idea for self-care so you know the water is kind of an elemental thing and you know if you're not a water person maybe some connect with nature right it could be the earth it could be Mm -hmm. trees it could be you know Mm -hmm. the air you know just go outside and take a breath but my creative practice I like to make art. I'm not good at it. It doesn't matter. I'm good with words. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I'm good on stage, but I like to paint and I like to make collages. And so sometimes I'll just throw on some soothing ambient music and I'll take out my art supplies and I'll just see what happens, you know, mm-hmm. and I just do it for the fun of it, for the release, for the resetting of, you know, letting go of my thinking brain for a while. Mm-hmm. And so those are some things that I like to do to take care of myself. Now, you mentioned water, and recently we've seen many different varieties of frozen water (laughs) in the state of Michigan. (laughs) Do you have any connection to, like, the ice storm or the the (laughs) snow in a similar way that you do to moving water? You know, I enjoy watching the snow from my windows at home (laughs) when I don't have to go anywhere. It's peaceful. I actually really enjoy the quiet that happens when it snows. Mm -hmm. 
that's a really, you know, sort of good opportunity to be self-reflective and cozy, Mm -hmm. you know. As far as the ice, when it melts, (laughs) I do like the rain. I like listening to the rain. That's actually very soothing. But... No, I could probably do without the ice storms. <laughs> Photography is one of my hobbies, so during any storm, oh. it's fun to go out and capture the ice with lights embedded into them or trees yeah. that are fully enveloped in ice. Uh, those really fascinate me. It looks beautiful. I, again, I like looking at it from mm-hmm. inside my warm, cozy house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, big change from Utah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's totally different weather. But I grew up on the East Coast, so it's not that dissimilar. It's just been many years since I've experienced it. So it's like everything. I'm just, you know, shifting and navigating the change and the newness of the environment in all the ways that I can. Yeah. Well, it's been great talking to you, and thank you again for being a part of this experiment. I'm so excited. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for listening to CEW's podcast, Strength in the Midst of Change. To learn more about this episode or the services and virtual programming offered by CEW+, please visit cew.umich.edu. Here at CEW Plus, we navigate circumstantial barriers by providing academic, financial, and professional support to help you reach your personal potential. Established to support women through higher education, we lift up women and all underserved communities at the University of Michigan and beyond. Through career and education counseling, funding, workshops, events, and a diverse, welcoming community, we exist to empower. We are CEW Plus, and we are here to help you reach your potential. The University of Michigan resides on the traditional territories of the three fires peoples, the Ojibwa, Adawa, and Potawatomi.